First Person Advisors is now a subsidiary of NFP, the fifth largest insurance broker in the world, combining local expertise with access to global capabilities and solutions. Learn more at firstpersonadvisors.com. Dearly beloved Ozer fans. <laughs> hey, Coach, how you doing? Bye, 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 good night. Six, five, 200 or so. <laughs> Hello again, everybody. I'm Kit Jackson. Whoa, Nelly. Whoa, 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 feelings. Again, for Coach Knight. He is a horse. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Keith. How you doing, Coach? <laughs> and uh, before the vowels with a prayer, here's Howard Cosell. Don, quite possibly, that is the most incongruitous presentation of ministerial manipulation that this sportscaster has ever witnessed. Not many people can channel their inner Howard Cosell, Keith Jackson, or IU play-by-play -play legend Don Fisher, let alone do it with the then newly married Coach Bob Knight sitting right next to you. But Mark Patrick did. And those weren't his only sports specialties. Hello again, everybody. I'm Harry Carroll, boy. Ah! Hi, honey. Mark Shot here, and this is my new show, Smoke em If You Got em. Mark Patrick, a master impersonator and a giant among Indianapolis broadcasting personalities in the 80s and 90s. Where is he now, and what's he up to? Find out on this edition of the Business and Beyond podcast. Hello and welcome to the Business and Beyond podcast presented by PNC. I'm Gary Dick. Well, outside of those spot-on voice impressions, Mark Patrick left his mark on Indiana broadcasting in many other ways. Sportscaster. Mark Patrick has sports for us coming up. Nice tie, first of all. Great tie today. Mm -hmm. One of the besties. Well, thanks, Mike. This is one of my mom's old tablecloths. <laughs> Lottery TV host. On our last Hoosier Millionaire, Gene McDonald of Lafayette went to our Millionaire round and won $221,000. Back in the day, there were few places you could go where you didn't see or hear Mark Patrick, sports director at Wish TV for eight years, host of the Hoosier Millionaire show for 14 years, and a big part of the Bob and Tom show on WFBQ in Indianapolis for many years. But Mark has been out of the limelight for some time now. He lives in South Carolina in the middle of the Blue Ridge Mountains, where he is enjoying retirement through another one of his many talents, woodworking. And it is my distinct pleasure to have uh, with me on the podcast this week, Mark Storen, better known uh, to as many fans uh, as Mark Patrick. Mark, great to have you on. How are things in South Carolina? Yeah, I was just thinking, you've been my friend for over 40 years. And this yep. may be the second time I've ever called you Gary. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a good point. I, I think you are exactly right. That's the nickname for you. And I, I'll tell you what, you are one of the rare people that every time I've ever seen you walk into a room, I smile. And uh, that people are rare. Well, that's, that's, 
that's nice of you to say, and you've certainly made people smile and laugh uh, on, on so many levels for so many years as well. What, first of all, you're out in South Carolina, so you're, you're uh, obviously out of the business, retired. What, why South Carolina? Well, um, our daughter, Lindsay, has her farm D from uh, Purdue, one of your favorites. And yep. uh, so she was at Johns Hopkins for seven years as chief of pharmacy there. And then uh, she got pregnant, she and her husband. And so they decided that Baltimore wasn't a really ideal place to raise a family. So she kind of started looking around and, and uh, took a job at Mission Hospital in Nashville as chief of pharmacy. And so she called us and she said, well, we're going to go to Asheville. I mean, she could have gone anywhere. You know, she had Cleveland Clinic and, and uh, you know, Mayo Clinic and all these great offers. I said, Asheville, why would you go to Asheville? And she said, well, dad, have you ever been there? And I said, well, no. <laughs> uh, when they moved, we helped them move and find a house and try and get things together. I was like, man, this is beautiful down here. So we ended up, uh, and I was, I had just retired. So we were at the point of thinking about moving. So uh, we found a foreclosure just across the state line in South Carolina in the mountains and decided to pull the trigger on that. Everything's worked out. So we've been here for over seven years. now. And you're in a beautiful uh, spot of the country. Uh, and something I didn't know about you, you know, you're, you're multi-talented. Uh, you and, and, and Pam have kind of renovated the place, right? Huh. Yeah, did basically about every room in the house. And then wow. built on an additional two-car garage that's my Hoosier's garage. It's got yeah, a vast tell, tell me about that. I've seen that. Describe that. I raised the ceiling so that you could uh, shoot uh, essentially a three-pointer. And I have a, an adjustable goal in there so that the grandkids can shoot at the lower goals, but Pop-Pop can shoot at 10 feet still. Then I, I finished it all, uh, the bottom four feet are in stone and brick, and then the rest of it, uh, the ceiling and all the walls, wall to wall, every inch is from a, a barn that was in West Memphis, Arkansas, that was built in 1912. And then I put up a Hoosiers poster that's autographed, and Drew got me, my son Drew got me a, an autographed picture of the Milan team that is in there and I put 1954 state champs above that and, and then I've got I got a scoreboard from Carmichael Auditorium which is oh wow kind of played yeah before uh, they went to the Dean Dome so it's got a lot of really cool feel to it I think kind of and I call it my Hoosiers barn yeah hey where'd you get that uh that skill because you you've really put together some really cool pieces and and uh, done some really uh, really excellent work um i actually worked for a living before i had to go <laughs> on tv when i was uh you know i've worked since i was 10 years old so i you know i've done all kinds of stuff especially going through high school and college i did uh some construction jobs worked at yellow freight and ups so as i was doing those jobs i, I learned a lot i learned a lot about people and uh, I also learned that I didn't want to work for a living. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, if James Brown was the hardest working man in, uh, in show business, you were the hardest working man in broadcasting because you 
were uh, a key player on the Bob and Tom show for so many years, sports director at Wish TV, host of the Hoosier Lottery show for many, many years, had your own radio show. What do you remember most? Did you ever sleep? I had a very defined sleep schedule. I would start, get into Bob and Tom about 530. Um, And you know, with Bob and Tom, at one point, I had 10 other stations around the country that I was also calling. So I would do things with Bob and Tom during breaks, go in and call another station in Detroit, Columbus, Sacramento, uh, Scranton, Milwaukee, Raleigh. I had 10 at one point uh, that I was just calling in bits, you know, maybe 10 minute segments. And then um, I would get done with Bob and Tom go home and try and do things that, you know, I needed to do around the house. And then every day at 1230, I would work out and I run, well, actually I'd run at noon and then work out. So it was very defined. And then I would uh, go to channel eight, two thirty, three o'clock, do the five and six. And then I always, I actually had it in my contract that I could go home for dinner uh, because I was very big on, as you know, seeing little league games, seeing junior yep. basketball games. And if there was not a game or a practice, then Drew and I would go out in the front yard and I'd, I'd play catch with him in my shirt and tie. Yep. And then I'd go, uh, go back in and do the, the late and then get home. 1130, when I got off Channel 8, I would get in my truck and I would turn off the radio. And then I would just decompress from the day on the drive home. Yeah. I, I just, and then by the time I got home, I was ready to go to sleep. I didn't, I felt like I didn't have anything going through my head at that point. And I get to, you know, I get to sleep about 12, 15 or so. And then I, I got up at five. Wow. And start over. And then on Fridays, after I got done with Bob and Tom, I would go tape the lottery show. So I had Bob and Tom, all the calls, the lottery show. And then Fridays at Channel 8 were really bad because it's high school football or basketball. So it was generally live somewhere at five and six. Then you cover a game uh, and then you try and get, you know, that was predated what the technology is now so much, but we relied on that telephone to ring. (laughs) Yeah. People told us what the score was so that we could get it. So that was, those were long Fridays. I'll bet. You mentioned Bob and Tom and the bits uh, that you had with stations all over the country. So many funny bits. Harry Carey, TC, the traffic, uh, the traffic guy, Marge Shot, Dirk Laneck. I mean, where those, where, where, how'd you develop those? Where'd you get that knack for, especially Dirk Laneck, because that was bizarre, funnier than heck, but it was really bizarre how you had the, the uh, kind of the deformed head uh, that was part of that bit. Dirk was born because we had tech that during the break at Channel 8 loved to uh, mess around with the switcher. And when they got new effects, you know, they would mess around with the effects. And so I was sitting there one night and I look up and it's like, oh my God, there's my dad. Because (laughs) they've taken a bald head and put it on mine. And that was like the most frightening thing I had ever seen. It's like, oh my God, that's my dad. Of course, Mike and Debbie thought that was hilarious. And then one night, they made me have this giant chin. And I was like, hey, freeze that and save it. 
because that's hilarious. You know, I said, I get, it just looks like you're supposed to look if you're a sports anchor, okay? <laughs> the big chin, the very cocky outlook. And so, uh, so then I'm like, okay, you can do that and I can talk. And they're like, yeah. So I just threw on the shades. There was this old gold jacket that was in the station for some reason. I turned it inside out, put that on, and uh, just started kind of doing, doing dirt. Yeah. Well, now, in doing a little research for our conversation here, did, did Jay Leno steal Dirk Lenek that bit? Yeah. <laughs> really? How'd, yeah. That, how'd that happen? You know, it sounds really... You know, that's a big eye roll thing. And, oh, yeah, right. Jay Leno would steal something from you. And so, yeah, one night, uh, this is when we were on different uh, time zones. So feeds would come across an hour early. And Leno was coming across the NBC feed. And uh, all our production people said, hey, 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 come in here and look at this. Look at this. Leno's doing Dirk. <laughs> and I'm like, what? And I go in and he's doing Iron J. And it is, it's just the same thing. I mean, it's, it's exactly the same thing. And I've been doing dirt for a couple of years at that point. Yeah. I was like, well, you know, yeah. And then, and then it got to the point where people were saying, oh, you ripped off Jay Leno. And I'm like, no, you know, this, I really, you know, I really, I was doing it first. And then there was a comedian who wrote for Jay Leno and then would be on the road <clears throat> and he came in to bob and tom and he was there one morning and he goes uh and tom says hey this is this is interesting and he says oh yeah you're so you're the original iron jay huh? and i'm like yeah i guess he goes he goes hey you know jay ripped you off <laughs> yeah really I don't really. He goes, yeah, he was in Indianapolis to drive the pace car. He saw that and he came back and he said, this guy in Indianapolis is doing this thing I want to do. Let's figure it out. Really? Yeah. So I, I was just glad to hear that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise I would have always kind of wondered. Yeah. Mark, why did you, I mean, you're still a relatively young guy. Why did you decide to kind of step away from things a few years ago, get out of the business? Mm -hmm. I was just tired. And uh, I mean, I physically was tired. And when you have that many jobs, you also have that much management. You know, you just don't have, everybody goes, oh, well, you know, you just, everybody's got management. Well, you do, but I had the management at Channel 8. I had the management at the lottery. I had the management at the radio station. You know, then even at I added Fox Sports Radio to that. And so I, was, I had management that was in L.A. <laughs> so uh -huh. those calls at any time, you, you know, and you're um, it, it was it was really stressful. And my son was also at the point where he was going into junior high and I was going to start missing stuff. Because right. they, they play games at three thirty or four. And I just didn't want to miss stuff, you know, mm -hmm. and. I think he's got a chance to be pretty good. You know, and I saw some things and it, and it was difficult because of the position I was in. I knew what guys looked like when they made it and what they had looked like. I mean, I'd seen Eric Montross. I'd seen Dane Bailey. 
and, and different guys, you know, uh, Damon Bailey. And, and I'd seen them grow up. So it's like, okay, I know how good they were then. And, and so I was kind of like, ah, I, don't, I don't think I want to miss this. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I always felt like if you make decisions based on your family, then you never regret it. Yeah. And so that's what I tried to do. I went totally radio uh, when Drew was 10 and, and I had very much flexibility with that. And then got lucky enough that I was just doing totally mornings and making a good living by the time he was in high school in his first couple of years in college. You know, then it kind of got to the point where I had 23 year old kid telling me what I needed to do. <laughs> <laughs> and so at that point I was like, okay, that's, I don't need to work anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, you mentioned one other thing I wanted to ask you, you mentioned the Fox uh, sports radio gig that you had for a period of time. I'm trying to remember back. Did you, was there interest in you when they put together Mike and Mike, the radio show on ESPN of you, you uh, maybe being a part of that? How'd that play out? In, uh, in 1990, I think, 90 or 91, ESPN radio started. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I go to New York for the auditions and got hired with Chuck Wilson and Tony Bruno. So the three of us then, uh, and, and then ESPN Radio, this is hard for people to believe, but it was just weekends. So it was huh. one, 1 o'clock on Saturday afternoon it started. It ended at 1 a.m. Sunday morning, and then Sunday, again, 1 p.m. to 1 a.m. And you took about 12 hours. I mean, you get an hour off. You know, they paired us, you know, two and two through the thing, or all three of us, or however that worked, but I would fly in on Saturday because I had to do the late Friday night at channel eight. Then I would fly in Saturday morning. You know, you had to fly to Hartford. That's 45 minutes to ESPN in Bristol uh, via a limo. And then boom, right to that studio. And it was literally a closet. then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, so I did that for a little while. And then I was like, you know what? I, I just can't do this anymore. You know, and that was all part of the family thing. I mean, like, there was just you know, seven days a week plus the travel in between. I just uh, couldn't do it. Then about, gosh, yeah, I guess it was around somewhere around 2000. Uh, they called and said, you know, uh, Tony Bruno's left. Would you like to be on with Mike Golick? And I had to think really hard on that. So I went and I did a week. It just didn't feel right. Uh, you know, uh, Mike Golick had had several people audition with him. And it just, you know, you either kind of have chemistry with somebody or you don't. And I don't, right. there's nothing against Mike. I mean, I mean I'm sure it's much more of me because I'd basically been doing things by myself for so long. So it just didn't quite have the, the right feel. And I, I mean, I even said when I was in there, I said, I, I heard John with Greenberg last week. I think you guys sound really good. <laughs> yeah. And that, so that ended up being who they hired and, and obviously it was a great call. Yeah. Hey, I, I think I know the, what you're going to say, the answer to this question, but do you, do you miss broadcasting at all? Um, no. Yeah. <laughs> Is that what you thought I was going to say? Yeah, that's what I thought you were going to say. Yeah. You know what? The only thing I miss, the events. The, the Final Four just happened. You know, I mean, I, and I, was, I was thinking about that. I mean, I was talking about knowing you from 40 years ago 
30 years ago, you and I were both covering uh, the Final Four in Minneapolis. Yep, yep. And I, I can remember you pounding on a typewriter inside your satellite. Oh, yeah. But that's what I miss. I, yeah. I miss walking into those venues and going, wow. Yeah. <laughs> you felt, you know, and I, I think of that when, uh, you know, I've been to Final Fours, obviously, since. And I, uh, a couple of years ago, I, I worked uh, one of the NCAA regionals. But, you know, other than that, I don't miss just the time element, you know. And, yeah. And then the, the consultants. And I, I, I absolutely very honest when I say I could not handle this era of social media. Yeah. I just couldn't. I would have been canceled two minutes in. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll bet it adds a whole new dynamic. Yeah. And in many times, especially Twitter, uh, such a negative dynamic to the whole, to the whole oh, equation. Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. You, know, there, you and I were kind of on the edge of this growing up, but essentially from the beginning of broadcasting, there were 50 stars and 250 fans, 250 million fans, 50 stars. 250 million fans. And those 50 stars, everybody knew. Mm-hmm. You know, movie stars or, you know, radio, first radio stars and then television stars. You know, Bob Hope, Bing Crosby, uh, big movie stars. And, and then television people, man, that was incredible. You know, mm-hmm. if you, you were Raymond Burr and you were on Perry Mason or Lucille Ball on I Love Lucy, 50 million people a week, yeah, that's an okay audience. Yeah. <laughs> Today it's a Super Bowl. Yeah. Um, and, and now that has evolved into there are 250 million people with 50 followers. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just crazy. Everybody's got an opinion. Everybody thinks they have an audience. And, you know, somebody go, hey, gosh, man, I got 48 likes on my, <laughs> really? 48, wow. Um, <laughs> yeah. What a number. <laughs> exactly, exactly, yeah. If one of uh, uh, Andy Williams' specials had only gotten 48 million, he would have been crushed. <laughs> <laughs> All right, exactly, exactly. And we're going to have much more with Mark Patrick when we return. Uh, growing up in Brownsburg, being the... Uh, the dad of a major league uh, pitcher, and a lot more. That's when the Business and Beyond podcast returns. First Person Advisors is now a subsidiary of National Financial Partners, the fifth largest insurance broker and consultant in the world. Develop your total reward strategies all in one place with the combination of First Person's local expertise and NFP's global resources and integrated solutions. Learn more at firstpersonadvisors.com. Welcome back to the Business and Beyond podcast presented by PNC. My guest this week, Mark Patrick, uh, coming to us, uh, our discussion uh, this week from his home in South Carolina. Mark, you're, you're a few miles away from where you grew up. You are a tried and true Hoosier growing up in uh, Brownsburg. What was uh, childhood like for Mark Patrick? 
I, I imagine it was a lot, I, you know, I've talked about this, but we, we had basically identical childhoods in different places in mm-hmm. India. You know, it, Brownsburg, if you just know it now, is not the place where I grew up. It's, yeah. We literally had one stoplight. So if you told somebody, hey, just go up to the stoplight and turn right, they didn't have it like which stoplight that one in the middle of town. You know, I didn't have the greatest home life. So, you know, escapes for me were uh, getting on my bike and, and riding uh, with my friends to uh, play baseball all day at the park, uh, stop at Hollett and Harmon Drugstore and get a Bub's Daddy and pack of baseball cards and uh, maybe a Cherry Coke. And, uh, and then, you know, riding home or playing in the backyard, playing. I mean, we just played sports all the time. Yeah, yeah. Pretended like we were somebody. I mean, every, every year on New Year's Eve, I would go out, and if it had snowed, I would make sure that the driveway was shoveled. But when I had that countdown in my head to New Year's Eve, I wanted to be the first guy in the world to make a basket that year. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, that- and so, uh, you know, I did that every year and, you know, I just put in countless hours on that basketball court, uh, outside our garage, never did me any good, but you know. <laughs> what was your, what was your favorite, uh, favorite sport? I think basketball. Yeah. I, mean, I just, uh, absolutely adored Rick Mount. And then the Pacers, the early Pacers were just, uh, you know, it was just huge. You know, I played baseball, I played football too, but. You know, basketball was always because it was Indiana. You know, I mean, yeah, was, yeah. From from sectionals, you know, cramming inside that Brownsburg varsity gym from sectionals, you know, four thousand people in that place couldn't breathe. It was amazing. Yeah, and then, yeah. And then watching the Brownsburg sectional winner go in and get trumped at Hinkle every year, just <laughs> never even close. Yeah. Gee, you know, win the sectional, you get to go play George McGinnis and Steve Downing in at the regional at Hinkle. <laughs> Hey, well, you, hey, your connection to basketball and the Pacers, I was thinking about that, was, was your uncle, right? Mike Storen was one of the original. He was, my, uh, he was my dad's cousin. Cousin, okay. Yeah, so he and my dad were cousins and not, you know, not particularly close because they'd grown up in different parts of Indiana. But uh, it, was, it was interesting to see the general manager of the Pacers have the same last name as me. Yeah, yeah. You went to Ball State. Right. When, when did you get your uh, uh, get the bug that you wanted to be in uh, broadcasting or commu- is that what you majored in communications, broadcasting? Also? Well, as you know, growing up, the question was, Gary, whether I was going to play professional football, basketball or baseball. <laughs> of course. Of course. You know, yeah. I knew I would have to make some sort of decision. And so <laughs> I figured out that wasn't going to happen. Uh, I actually thought I was going to be a, a, like I can remember freshman or sophomore year in high school. Uh, you know, you had to fill out, what are you going to do in 10 years? And I, so I, I remember putting down doctor, you know, and then I had to take my first biology class. And as soon as we cut into that frog, I said, all right, well, this isn't going to happen. <laughs> so figure out something else to do for, to make money where you don't have to work. So I was 16 and I remember calling, I heard Buster Bodine, I was outside, my dad was making me do something. And I was actually working, I think I was pulling weeds and I was listening to Buster Bodine and he gave the request line number. 
ah, this is funny. I got a funny thought. So I called and it rang literally a hundred times. And then when he picked up, I got this. It was the weirdest thing. I wanted to hang up. <laughs> you hear it ring so many times. And then, the, you know, and then he goes, W and AP. You're like, wow, this is Buster Bodine. I better hang up. <laughs> but I didn't. I just launched into this Dick Nixon impression. And he's laughing. And he's like playing along. So I, I'm like, you know, because I've been on the phone so long, I'm like, is this on the radio? I don't know. Is this, I didn't know how anything worked. Yeah. We certainly didn't have any of those classes at Brownsburg. And so I got done with it. He's laughing and, you know, he's like, thank you, Mr. President. And he hangs up. So I'm like, man, that was, that was weird. And so I go back and I'm, I'm working and it, it was probably an hour later, my neighbor comes running out of his house and he says, hey man, you were just on the radio. I said, what? Those Buster Bodine just had you on the radio. I was like, wow. And you know, cause I didn't understand the concept of taping, mm-hmm. editing, putting yeah. on, all that. So then I'm, I'm like, oh wow, that was cool. I've got people that know I was on the radio. So the next time I called him, he goes, hey man, I need your number. And so I said, oh, okay. So I gave him my, you know, my phone number. And then they started calling me for, uh, you know, just to do promo voices on promos, or different things. And then I would call into the morning show some with, you know, Bruce, Bruce Munson and Chris Connor and Tom Cochran. Just, they were so huge. Yeah. And I, oh my God, I'm, you know, I'm on the morning show on WNAP. And it was crazy. And then I went to college and, by my junior year, I was actually doing mornings with Chris Connor, Ron Bilo, and Ann Craig for a summer. And then, wow. Yeah. So it was, and then I was like, okay, well, this is what I need to do. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's where it started. That's, I did, I did not know that story. That's fascinating. Hey, uh, uh, Mark, you and I, of course, have spent a lot of time uh, in the broadcast ranks, but also on the, the athletic fields with our with our sons uh, over the years, and you mentioned this in the, the first part of our, our conversation. But uh, your son Drew, when did you uh, anticipate, or when did you kind of sense that that maybe Drew uh, was going to be competing at an elite at an elite level? I mean, I had a sense he was pretty good, but it's it, you know, as I said, it's really difficult when you do that for a living. So you say, okay. How much of me thinking he's pretty good is me being his dad? Right. Right. And how much of me thinking he's pretty good is because of my knowledge of sports and knowing what it takes to do that. Uh, And what I did know for sure was you can want it for them all you want. And it's so funny. I've said this so many times, and I just over the weekend saw King Richard about Richard Williams. Yeah. Yeah. and he basically says the same thing when he was talking to their first agent and coach. He said, you and I can want it for them all they want, but until they get it and they want it, it doesn't do any good. And, and that's exactly the way it was with Drew. And so, I mean, because I really had a, a big talk with him when he was about 14. I said, look, you're at that age now. This is where the separation begins. Because the kids that have succeeded now are the ones that grew early. 
<laughs> they had yeah. hair on their arms and on their belly button when they were 12, <laughs> some of them 10, and that's why they've dominated. You're not going to, that's not going to happen to you till you're about 16. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, he was very late bloomer. I knew he was going to be. And so I said, but you have to decide to want it. If you, if this is what you want to do, I'm going to give you everything you need to do that. And I'm going to give you all my time to help. But if you don't want to do it, just say so, because it's got to be within you uh, to want that. So when he was 14, 15, I saw that transition. And, I, and at that point, I just thought this would be really cool if he could play in college and I could go on the weekends to IU or Purdue and watch him play, you right. know. And then um, at the end of his, between his sophomore and junior year, he started throwing 90. And so then I was like, yeah, that's pretty good. You know, and then um, and then his junior year, he was, you know, he got letters from everybody. Mm -hmm. And so then I was and then, you know, uh, it was like in in the sectional of his junior after his junior year, a uh, scout from Major League Baseball Scouting Bureau came up to me and said, uh, you know, he's asking me all these questions. And he says, do you think he'll, he'll sign if he gets drafted out of high school? I go, he's going to get drafted? And I go, really? He goes, yeah. I said, but he's just a, you know, he's just a junior in high school. He goes, he goes well, if he, if he were coming out now, he'd be a second rounder. Wow. And so I was like, you mean today? And he goes, yeah. So he goes, next year, yeah, I don't know. And I go, well – I don't know. I think he'll probably go to college, but that was the first, that was the first I got from somebody, you know, cause friends will say, Oh, he's really good. And you know, yeah. that kind of, but when you hear it from somebody like that, who's got no vested interest and could care less who I was, then you go, Oh, okay. And yeah. then, you know, then we went on his visits, uh, you know, the summer and fall before his senior year he was getting full scholarship offers, which are unheard of in baseball. Baseball, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and then the scouts were coming to our house to visit and asking whether he was going to go to college. And when he decided he was going to go to Stanford, then that, you know, that kind of backed off the scouts a little bit because it's like, nah, because he was still physically very, you know, had a way to go mm -hmm. uh, at that point. So I, I, I really wanted him. Uh, to go to college. He ends up turning down a million dollars from the Yankees. Uh-huh. You know, that paid off. Yeah, I'd say. I'd, I'd say. And so he went to Stanford and then, what, 10th overall pick? Yes. Wow. That, yes. Now, what was that? What was that? Uh, it got to be an incredible level of pride, obviously, and, and had to be fun watching him compete at uh, the major league uh, level, being one of the best relievers in, in, in baseball. But what was that experience like? A price of nerves, too, you know, when your kid's the quarterback or the pitcher, you know, they're, they're in the spotlight all the time. What was that, well, what was that like? You know, uh, with Spud, what it's like when your kid is, is the quarterback and, and takes all the blame for right. uh, good, bad, or indifferent. You know, he could have, he could have a guy uh, – just have a perfect pass bounce off his hands and be intercepted. And at the end of the day, you look at the stat sheet and that's an interception. Yeah. Um, and, you know, 
I, I've told people be careful what be careful what you wish for because you think, oh my God, can you imagine going to a major league stadium and watching your son or watching your son on TV pitch in the big leagues? And first of all, it never hits you that that's what is happening. It's just like you need somebody to shake you. I mean, I remember just sitting there in St. Louis for his debut and the number of times we had gone to Bush Stadium when he was a kid to watch games. And it's like, I'm sitting in the same seats, but this time that's my son running out there. Oh, he's got Matt Holiday, And if he doesn't get Holiday, he's got Albert Pujols with the bases loaded. <laughs> Wait a minute. He was just in high school two years, two years ago. Two years ago, he was in high school. Yeah. And I'm like, we were thinking about what to do for his graduation party. And now, you know, he strikes out holiday and gets out of it. And I'm like, Oh my gosh. And he walks off like, yeah, you know, yeah. And, but it never got better. I mean, I just, it was awful. Every time I watched him, uh, you know, and, and just, it was, it, so it was nerve wracking. You, you, you're just, yeah. And, and, you know, he, and the, the lows are a hundred times the emotion that the highs are, you know, you take the lows so much more. And then, you know, he, he'd have a one, two, three inning. I mean, he threw an, he threw an immaculate inning when he was with the Reds. Uh, And it had only been done at that point, 62 times in the history of major league baseball, a one, two, three on nine, nine pitches, nine strikes, three strikeouts. Wow. Two times in the history of major league baseball. And so I'm thinking, hey, I can go to Twitter today and everybody's going to be saying how great he is. You go on there. It's like, well, where's that been? (laughs) Wish he'd done that last week against the Cardinals. Yeah. Well, why can't he do that? And I was just like, okay, I give up. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, What's what's Drew up to? I know he's here in Indy, right? He is. He uh, and, you know, he's using his Stanford education well. He has the rights to all the corn from the Field of Dreams. Really? Yeah. So he has field. The first project he's really been busy with is Field of Dreams whiskey. So they make whiskey out of the corn from Field of Dreams. And you are kidding! I didn't know that. That that's 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 amazing. So how how far along is he in the? In well, the- you know, it takes a while to, to distill yeah. and age it. So. It should hit the market in a year or so. I think he's got the, uh, you know, some of the other can product that's going to be out before that. And then there's other things that I, I don't know that I'm allowed to, to mention, yeah. but two other products along, uh, along those lines of corn and Field of Dreams that he's got going. But it's, you know, he's gotten so many people interested in that that just call him because they, they like the idea. So it's, it's pretty cool. David Letterman is involved in it now. As, as he said, any idea that you can synopsize in less than five words is a good one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was like Field of Dreams whiskey. Boom. Okay. Perfect, perfect. What's next for you, Mark? I know you're enjoying your grandkids. How many grandkids now? Three? Uh, that I know of. <laughs> no, there's, uh, I have Four? Four. Yeah. Lindsay has a, a son and a daughter, and then Drew has two sons. Two sons, okay. And uh, 
uh, you know, you think being a dad, as you know, yeah, you know, you think being a dad's pretty cool. But then when the grandkids come along, wow, yeah, it's, it's really amazing. Yeah. Well, Mark, I tell you, it, it has been a real treat to be with you to catch up uh, and see you. You look great, and uh, really appreciate you taking the time to to be on the podcast. And hopefully, uh, before too long, we we'll, we'll see each other again. I hope because. Uh, you're, you're a special guy and a good friend, and I appreciate you taking the time. I miss sitting next to you at the games, you know? Yeah, exactly. We used to sit next to each other at the games and, and uh, you know, to think about, it, it's hard to imagine that 40 years ago is when we yeah. started working together, and I am so proud of what you have done, how you've reinvented yourself through the years. Just the level you, you are now is just amazing, and I'm, I'm so happy, and I love listening to your podcast, too. So, I appreciate that. Well, I know our, our listeners are going to love listening to this one. Mark, thanks so much uh, for joining us. And, and thank you for joining us on this edition of the Business and Beyond podcast presented by PNC. It is a weekly conversation with achievers in business, sports, entertainment, and beyond. And you can download all of our episodes and also catch Indiana Business News 24-7. All you have to do is go to InsideIndianaBusiness.com. I'm Gary Dick. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.